If he's not back by Tuesday, we'll get Eric Clapton. Welcome to episode number 164 of the Random Thoughts Podcast. That is R-A-N-D-U-M-B-Thoughts.com online. I'm your host, Darren O'Neill. And on today's show, I'm going to do something a little bit different. Rather than looking at all of the depressing stuff that's in the news, and I just did a show a few days ago, I wanted to talk about the new Beatles documentary, which I know there's people out there who are either Beatle maniacs, and I would put myself into that category, and there's people that just absolutely hate the Beatles. I think this is an interesting documentary, even though it's on the evil Disney Plus, that runs about eight hours or so. It's in three different parts, which I know people are already going, eight hours, are you crazy? Who has eight hours? And this is all culled from the footage from the Let It Be sessions, which all took place in January of 1969. They came out with the Let It Be movie way back then. This is everything that was left. Well, not everything that was left on the cutting room floor. It's a lot of what was left on the cutting room floor because what the totality Of the material they had to work through is 60 hours of video and about 150 hours of audio. This is a documentary that took four years to put together. And the end result, I think, is pretty interesting. If you're not familiar with the Beatles' Let It Be sessions, the concept was for the four guys to get together and create something and do a performance all within just a couple of weeks' time. This ended up getting extended a little bit for a total of 22 days if you don't include the days off. But this is from start to finish, creating the songs, so writing the songs, arranging the songs, getting ready to perform them, And there was a lot of debate about where they were going to perform. The guy that was in charge of this wanted them to do it in Libya or something out in the middle of the desert. And that was uh, quickly poo-pooed by the Beatles. But it's an interesting look at four guys who were at the top of the rock slash pop world at that time. A lot of strife going on around them. John Lennon, newly with Yoko Ono at this point. And there were a lot of things that this documentary adds extra light to, dispels a few of the long-held fan theories about why the Beatles broke up and all of that. But for me, even though I was born in 1970, so after these sessions were complete, My first real taste of the music I wanted to listen to really came through John Lennon 
and the Beatles due to the tragedy of John Lennon's passing in 1980 when I would have been 10 years old. We were on vacation and they were playing John Lennon's new song, Starting Over, on the radio. I mean, literally, it seemed like you couldn't turn the radio on without this song being played. This was going to be a time of resurgence for John Lennon. And the day that we got home from our vacation, turned on the radio and heard the news that John Lennon had been assassinated. And it was at that point that I went down into the cabinet that had all the records in it and started listening to all of the Beatles records because my parents had all of the Beatles records. And that became about the only thing I would listen to for months, if not a year or so. Then there were some Beach Boys in there, but relatively there was a lot of Beatles listening going on. And even at 10 years old, I could tell that the band had something that other bands that I had heard at that point, again, at 10 years old, didn't really have. And again, I get it. Some people love the Beatles. Some people hate the Beatles. But this was me diving headfirst into a group that at that point, their catalog was finished. But you could hear that that band that was playing on the first couple of albums didn't really sound the same as the band that progressed into the Beatles that were studio musicians more than anything else. Because a lot of the music that they were creating, like a lot of the stuff on Sgt. Pepper, was way too complex at the time to perform live. I mean, now we have a lot of artists, and you can put that in air quotes if you like, that do nothing but get on stage and press a couple of buttons on a laptop and sing along to it. And that is considered music. Back then, people actually had to play the songs, and a lot of them were so complex that it just didn't lead to a live performance. But that seems to be one of these concepts that really drove the let it be sessions in the fact that they wanted to create music that could be played live rather than in the studio. Now, if you've ever been in a band, which I have not, but I'm assuming that playing live is a completely different concept than going into the studio. Because into the studio, it's very much like piecework. It is more like building something. You can put a foundation down, then you add some stuff. But when you're doing a live performance, then you get to play off of other people and you have a whole different mixture of things coming into the sound. And this documentary looks at how these four guys went about starting with nothing for this album and then having an album at the end of it. The strife that happened during the sessions was what got most of the attention. The concept that Yoko Ono broke up the band, all of this was floating around at the time. And it's interesting now that here we are in 2021 and this footage that's been sitting around pretty much collecting dust, although looking fabulous. So whatever they did 
with this film to get it ready to process it. It was very surreal for me because it didn't look like it was old, grainy, crappy footage. It was very nice looking footage. So it really did put you into the venue where all of this was happening. And when we start in on this, there's immediately talk of the death of Brian Epstein, who was the Beatles manager. And he was the guy that was pretty much the father figure. And he had now been gone once this started for a year or two. And the band really didn't have that one voice that could point them in the right direction or overrule somebody. So when you have four distinct personalities and you don't have somebody to say, well, okay, I'm going to moderate this and I'm going to be the one to tell you when you're right and when you're wrong and all of this and have somebody that they could trust without that, a little bit of uncertainty was how they were dealing with each other. There were some hurt feelings going on and this was discussed that you know Paul said hey I don't want to be the one that has to play boss because everybody understands when you're the one playing boss you're the one that's going to get the pushback you don't want that extra added responsibility because with that responsibility just like being an actual boss if you want a company now you've got that responsibility and you have to answer to people and it's a lot more complex than what Paul wanted to do was show up and create music the concept that Yoko Ono broke up the Beatles, I mean, yeah, it's a fun meme to throw around, but it was interesting to see her in this documentary overall just sitting quietly when everything else was going on. And this wasn't like she was the only external person showing up for these sessions. There were a lot of people hanging out around these sessions, including Paul's wife, Linda, including Ringo's wife, George's wife, including uh, some Hare Krishna's, which showed up. There was a lot of people that were coming in and out. So this wasn't exactly the concept that, you know, the four Beatles were really trying to get some work done. And Yoko Ono was causing strife. She was causing them not to work together. Didn't see that at all in this film and it was kind of interesting to see there was one portion where i think paul's playing let it be in the background and linda mccartney and yoko Ono are just having a laugh together everything was great this concept that the beatles were at each other's throats and about to completely implode did not come through in this documentary now you could also make the case that this was again selective editing because even though it is an eight hour documentary, we're pulling from 60 hours of video and 150 hours of audio. And the one thing I didn't love about the documentary, but I understood was because they had so much more audio than video, when they had an audio snippet that they thought was pertinent to the story, they would mix that audio in with video that they thought it might look like. So there was some bad dubbing at times, 
And it took me a minute or two to realize what was going on, which was, oh, I get it. Because they had that warning at the beginning of the movie. Maybe not a warning. This wasn't like you copy this and the FBI is going to put you in jail. But the disclaimer that this movie, well, it was great because this is on Disney Plus, one of the most evil companies in the world. And the disclaimer up front of the documentary is what you're about to see contains scenes of people smoking some bad language. (laughs) It's like, what? We're worried about people smoking? This is something you have to warn people about, Disney? How far have we gone as a society? where the warnings aren't like, hey, you're about to see some horrible X-rated adult content, or you might hear some really, really bad words. No, now you have to be warned that you may see people smoking on screen. Is that triggering people these days? I don't know. Reach out to me if it is. If seeing somebody smoking in a movie footage that was taken in 1969, if that's actually triggering somebody, I want to know who and why. Darren at randomthoughts.com. But yes, after that warning, you know, they say that when they don't have the video of the audio that they're using, that they might put up a representative image or picture. The way they said it, it didn't really hit me at first that they're just going to be doing bad lip syncing. This wasn't like they went to a solid static picture and then was like, well, make it obvious that we're playing audio. No, they tried to put a picture in that kind of looked like them saying the things they were saying. And I thought that was a little bit weird, but that's kind of a small thing on the totality of this. When it comes to the Yoko thing, again, breaking up the Beatles, Paul McCartney shows how aware he is of what's going on with the fandom and what is going to go on because he had a quote that was, Quote, it's going to be such an incredible comical thing in 50 years time. They broke up because Yoko sat on an amp. And uh, he wasn't far off. He was not far off. I thought one of the highlights of the film, or at least one that really brought a lot of levity was where George decided he was going to leave the band. And we'll talk about that in a second. But. This was the morning after George isn't there and Paul McCartney's on the drums banging away and Yoko is being Yoko on the mic, just doing a primal scream and Paul's screaming and everybody's screaming and they're all trying to have a cathartic bit of a session. It would seem over the state of events and Paul's daughter, Heather, who was eight years old at the time was there. And then gets on the mic and does her best Yoko Ono impersonation. And I thought that was absolutely fantastic. Because if you had followed the Beatles, like I have, and had read things over the years, you would think that Yoko and Paul and the band just didn't get along. And that just was not the case. You get a completely different vibe watching this much extended cut of those sessions. And I do think. Yoko has gotten a bad rap over the years. I don't want to hear her sing. I don't like her music. But as a person that broke up the Beatles, no. She seemed very supportive of John Lennon. She did not seem negative towards anybody else. There's a portion 
where George Harrison is talking to John and Yoko about the fact that he's mulling around making a solo album because he's got so many songs that he has written and he knows his place with the Beatles, which was normally like get a song or two on an album where everything else is Lennon McCartney and maybe there's a Ringo song in there. But George knows that he's second fiddle to John and Paul. And he brings this up to John and he says, you know, this is something that would help me get all of these songs out there. He's like, I can hand them off to other artists, but I figure why do that? I can do them myself. That makes the most sense. I would like to do them myself. And both John and Yoko very supportive of George doing a solo album. And George was very tentative about this because this came after the I'm leaving the band right now. See you later after somebody said, should we get lunch? And George says, I'm going to leave the band. But George saying, you know, I've got these songs and I'm thinking I could put them out as a solo record, but I don't want this to interfere with or take away from the Beatles. And you could start seeing what was going on at that point, which was these guys are drifting apart a little bit. They're going through a process at this point. George Harrison's only 25 years old, which is hard to fathom that through all the Beatlemania and all of that, George, the youngest. And he's sitting there with all of these songs and he wants to do his own thing, but he wants to be a part of the group. And there is that balance going on. And the question is, can you do that? Can you reach out? Can you expand without hurting this core thing that is already there? And a lot of this documentary is about the relationship between the four guys and how they interact and how this whole thing works. And it boils down at the end of act one, which of course it's the great cliffhanger. If you're making a film is George saying after somebody asked you, should we go get lunch? George is like, I'm going to be leaving the band. And they're like, when and he's like now. And that was it for a few days. And you don't see what happened to bring George back. There were meetings outside of where they were recording this. There were private things going on. So there's a lot of things we will never know. But there was one telling moment. And this is interesting when you're making a documentary, which was going on at the time. I mean, the Beatles knew there were cameras everywhere following this process that they were embarking on. At one point, right at the beginning of this eight hour epic, Somebody comes up and asks the Beatles who are just trying to, you know, noodle around a little bit on their instruments, figure out what kind of songs they're going to write. And they say, hey, can you turn those amps down a little bit? Because we're having a hard time picking up the dialogue between all of you. And they're like, oh, wait, you're you're recording everything we say and you're going to be using that. So once you know that it's kind of like doing a podcast, you know that what you're saying is going to go out to an audience. And as such, that is all colored by the fact that, you know, it's going out to an audience. So John Lennon being the cynical guy and the funny guy. Is it an act? Is that how he always is when the cameras aren't rolling? You don't know because you're only seeing him. When the cameras are rolling, but Paul and John at one point are having a conversation about George. Well, what if he doesn't? come back. I mean, we're on a deadline 
we've got to do this thing. And John Lennon quips, if he's not back by Tuesday, we'll get Eric Clapton. And that was interesting to me because we don't know if that is really what would have happened, what would have been the attempt. George Harrison decides he's not coming back to finish this project. I don't think it would have been that easy for John and Paul to just abandon George, but it's a business and they realize that the show has to go on and everybody can be replaced. That's just the way show business is, any business is. But spoiler alert, George comes back and those things all work themselves out. Well, at least as much as the Beatles work anything out until they're impending breakup which happens not too long afterwards but this looking at a band looking at the songwriting process to me was well worth the time put into it now if you're not interested in how songs come to be you may find this whole thing to be boring you may think it's horrible hearing these snippets of songs being played over and over again as they try to figure things out but the influences that come out back here in, again, 1969, as they're trying to write their own songs, well, you know, if you can't come up with something, you, you want to loosen yourself up, you play something that you know. And they played music from Bob Dylan, from Chuck Berry, you know, all the popular stuff that was going on at the time. At one point, Paul McCartney makes a comment that it'll be their songs for young lovers, which is the title of a Frank Sinatra album. And Paul has a lot of knowledge of standards, that type of music, and that becomes pretty obvious. At one point, John Lennon is singing a Hank Williams Sr. song. So here you have a group of guys who are well versed in the world of music, and I don't know. If most of the artists that are around today have that kind of knowledge to go back and really take what has happened in the past and create that into their own style. I think there are too many people that, well, I listen to country music and that's all they listen to. Or I listen to Sinatra and the standards. That's all I listen to. Or I listen to heavy metal and that's all I listen to. It seemed the Beatles were well-versed in pretty much all music going on. They were very big fans of Elvis Presley. There was a few Elvis impersonations going on. They had talked about the way Elvis had done a couple of things vocally. So they're well aware of all different types of music. And the way they collaborate, especially Lennon and McCartney, this documentary really sheds a lot of light on the way they work together, just throwing things back and forth. And there were some things that were a little strange, like, you know, doing songs without moving their lips. Some people may think that was extraneous, especially in an eight-hour documentary. I thought it was vital just because it epitomized these two guys not taking themselves too seriously, still having fun. There were many portions of the video where John Lennon either solo just gets up and dances while the music's playing. Or he dances with Yoko. At one point, I think he and Paul did a jitterbug together, which was pretty fun. You certainly didn't get the feel 
all the time that the guys didn't want to be there doing what they were doing. Now, there were certain times that, in fact, was the vibe. But when they were working on the music, once they were getting over the whole, what are we going to do? There was a lot of wasted time in what are we going to do? Where are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? Once they started writing the songs is really when the magic started happening. And if you like to find out things about how songs were created, to me, it was amazing to have audio and video of Paul McCartney playing his bass guitar, kind of like a guitar and just kind of slamming on it. And out of nowhere comes the opening riff of Get Back. And the song just kind of appears out of nowhere. I thought that was really interesting, as well as the group working on certain lyrics. George Harrison comes in with the song Something, and he just can't figure out the lyrics. And he sings, something in the way she moves attracts me like, he's like, I I don't know. And John Lennon offers like a pomegranate or like a cauliflower or something like that. He's like, just put something in there and you'll figure it out, which was a lot of the way the Beatles work when it came to lyrics was this isn't a group or songwriters that the stuff magically spews out of them from start to finish. There is a melody or there's a guitar riff or there's a line here and there, and they all just somehow find themselves going together like a jigsaw puzzle and the right pieces and the right parts somehow make their way to where they're supposed to be. Something turns into eventually one of the greatest love songs ever written, a song that Frank Sinatra called the greatest love song ever written. There's no question George Harrison had the writing chops, but he was the baby of the Beatles. And as such, John and Paul as a power dynamic would be, maybe didn't see that, didn't take George as seriously, didn't want to give up some of that control, maybe consciously, maybe unconsciously. But you get to see George going through the stages in this documentary of, you know, do I really belong here? Are they taking me seriously? Am I really adding anything to it? And it's nice to see that story kind of work its way through. The one line in Let It Be when it comes to songwriting, I think epitomizes how Lennon and McCartney work together. And this was not in the documentary. So I don't know exactly where this happened, when this happened, because Let It Be was a song that's in this film. But when Paul brought the song to John to listen to, he had you know a scratch vocal done. So he had it down. He's like, okay, here, I'm playing this for him. And the line comes, the movement you need is on your shoulder. And Paul said, well, I'll be changing that. And John looked at him and said, no, you won't. And Paul said, what do you mean? I don't even know what it means. And John Lennon said, yeah, but I know what you mean. And that epitomizes, I think, how these guys work together, how they fed off of each other, how the creative process worked. There's no doubt John Lennon could write songs on his own. There's no doubt Paul McCartney could write songs on his own. But I think they both realized that as anybody with an ego, and we all have them, it's really nice to have somebody that can tell you 
yeah, yeah, you're doing really good with that. Somebody that you respect or somebody to tell you, no, you're full of crap. That doesn't work. Change it. And they had that kind of a working relationship. And that is why I think Lennon and McCartney go down as one of the greatest songwriting duos of all time. Now, also was interesting that since they were going for this concept of being able to play these songs live, and they did on the rooftop of Apple Studios, much to the chagrin of a lot of the businesses in the area who called in a bunch of noise complaints, but they needed to play these songs live. And they needed a little something extra, so they brought in Billy Preston, one of the best piano players, organ players around. And what Billy Preston brought to the group, I thought was really interesting. I thought added quite a bit to the overall sound of this album. And it was nice to see somebody else coming in and that he had the ultimate seat of watching what was going on. And I can only imagine what that was like because the Beatles at that time were, you know, like Taylor Swift now. I mean, okay, maybe bigger. And Billy Preston coming in and being a part of it, I thought he did a fantastic job and added a whole lot to the finished product. And the rooftop concert, you finally in this documentary get to see in its glory. You get to finally hear what the police officers were saying when they arrived. And what ended up going on with all of that. But the end result was you went from having nothing at the beginning of this, sitting in an empty warehouse to the four guys, along with Billy Preston up on the roof of Apple core and producing some pretty good sounding music. I mean, it may not be your thing, but it was a pretty impressive feat to create this out of thin air and show that the Beatles were still a band that could play together without the studio trickery that they had the chops that, you know, Ringo could drum and George could play guitar and John could play guitar and Paul could just belt out whatever he wanted to. And Paul never gets the credit. I think he deserves as a bass player, but we see in the finale there, the guys just having fun playing together especially when the police finally show up on the roof and Paul and John turn around and it's like, okay, I think that was kind of a sign that they were doing the right thing. And this whole crazy ordeal that they had been putting themselves through was working out just fine. I don't know if I have much of a different impression of any of the Beatles after watching the film, because I have, read a lot about the Beatles, have watched everything, have the audio of these sessions, which has been out on bootleg for quite a while now, which is 89 CDs or something like that. So a vast majority of what they had to work with for this documentary has been floating out on the magical internet for a long time. John Lennon, every bit the wit that you would think. Paul McCartney, Maybe was the biggest change watching this would be that Paul McCartney was not tyrannical. He was not trying to control everything. He understood the situation that he was in, didn't want to be in it, but was like, we don't have Brian Epstein anymore. And somebody needs to point us in the right direction. We need somebody to get all four of these guys 
going in the same direction towards one goal. Ringo Starr, one of the easiest going guys in the world, where we had the George Harrison bit where he was going to quit and he left for a couple of days and brought the drama. Ringo brought zero drama. You see Ringo today, everything, peace and love, that's Ringo. He brings that into everything that he does. And here he was the factor that would unify everybody if he possibly could. And besides just seeming bored every now and then, Ringo comes across as very likable. Paul comes across as somebody who is very driven. And John comes across as just brilliant, especially as a collaborator, because there wasn't a lot of Lennon writing stuff, but he was very much involved in everything that McCartney was throwing out there. So it's something that I would highly recommend people checking out. Even if you're not a huge Beatle fan, if you're into music at all, into songwriting at all, into seeing what was going on behind the scenes and how all of this stuff gets recorded and albums get made, I would definitely give this one a thumbs up. You know, unless you're afraid to see people smoking and drinking on camera and then Disney's warning should scare you away and you should hide in a closet and never watch anything ever again. But if you check it out, let me know what you think. Like to hear what you thought of this eight hour epic of the Beatles Let It Be sessions. Let me know. Darren, D A R R E N, at random thoughts, R E N D U M B thoughts.com. I do have a few people to thank for today's podcast coming in with support for the show, which you can do at randomthoughts.com slash donate. Coming in with $15, our buddy Chew the Cookie. Yeah, if you want to know how to spell that, go look at the show notes. And our buddy, Sir Truck Driver, coming in with $5, splitting it four ways between this show, the Rock and Roll pre-show, unrelenting the show that I do with Gene Nevtuliev, and Planet Rage, the show that I do with Larry Blydner. He says, keep up making the bright spots on my day with your shows. And I appreciate that, Sir Truck Driver. Have fun out there on the roads, especially as things are starting to get a little bit slippery. He says, you, Larry and Gene are awesome. And yeah, we're all trying to be awesome. We're all trying to have fun. It's like getting the band back together. It's just like the Beatles when I get together with Larry or Gene. If at some point get Gene and Larry together and see what happens. And it is the first of the month. So we thank the people that are over on our Patreon, which we don't do anything with. And it's just there in case you're on Patreon and make it easy for you to donate to the show. Dennis Woods, $5. Brian Janak, $5, both over on Patreon. And we appreciate both of you for supporting the show, helping us keep the microphones on, the web servers running, and everything working the way it should. If you want to take part in this value for value model, there's a few different ways to do that. You can go to randomthoughts.com slash donate. You can click that donate button. That's a one-time or monthly donation through PayPal. You can use the QR codes or the wallet addresses if you want to do the crypto thing. You can use the P.O. Box address if you want to go the snail mail route. And if you are on a podcasting 2.0 app, like the Breeze app, and there's a bunch of them now that you can get, if you don't have one, don't know what that's all about, go to newpodcastapps.com. But if you're on one of those and you're set up, you can boost right now. You can send Satoshis, which are parts of Bitcoin, magically from your app 
directly to me. It's a magical system, and it's really cool if you've never checked it out. I encourage everybody to do so, but we truly appreciate everybody for supporting the show monetarily and listening to the show. There's a lot of things you can be doing with your time, and it is an honor that you're spending it listening to this show. I will be back again next week to do it all over again just for you. But until then, I am Darren O'Neill. Thanks for listening. 